0: Well, I um, I put together some things today just uh, trying to catch up some loose ends. <clears throat> and one of the things I wanted to do was to discuss briefly the grouping of miracles uh, done in the Bible. And uh, turn back to Exodus, turn back to the book of Exodus. And uh, we're not going to study these in any <clears throat> detail, but just to uh, mention some things about it. Uh, Exodus chapter 6, <clears throat> where God is uh, making His plans and uh, He's telling them the problems that are going to, uh, to happen and everything. And so as you go through chapter 6, and then you begin to read where the plagues actually take place in chapter 7, uh, notice uh, over and over again through this you'll find the expression that they may know. Now like I just happened to spot verse 7 of chapter 6. I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God, who bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So just look for that kind of a uh, that kind of thing. And, uh, uh, of course, the question is like uh, Moses asked in verse 12, How then shall Pharaoh hear me, who am of uncircumcised lips? Now, one of the things that I find this valuable for is that God recognized the need for signs. Remember, he gave Moses the miracles of throwing the rod down that becomes a serpent, putting his hand within his coat. So when someone is uh, objecting to your desire to see their miracles that they claim to be able to do, and they begin to reprove you for that as if you're doing wrong to ask for signs. No, God knew that men would have to have evidence. And, uh, he gave Moses evidence and the plagues themselves are going to constitute evidence that, uh, that God was, uh, was involved in this. So, uh, throughout the, uh, throughout the uh, story there, you'll be able to read those and see what God is saying that you may know. So, the one, one period of, of Justin, A profusion of miracles was in connection with the Exodus. Now, if you take the wandering in the wilderness after the people got to Mount Sinai and left Mount Sinai and they traveled up to uh, Kadesh Barnea and from then they uh, failed to go up and take the land and they had to wander for 40 years. The years of wandering, if you take the miracles that are given there certainly were not miracles done every day. They were were really scattered out, uh, remarkably few, during that whole 40 years. Now, the exception would be that every day except the Sabbath, there was manna on the ground. And the the manifestation of God is the cloud and the pillar of fire. It was there all the time. So when you think about all of that, plus the plagues and everything else, that whole period of the Exodus and the wandering in the wilderness was a period of, of extraordinary miracles that were done. Now, if we went back and read in the book of Genesis, we could read of, of miracles. You know, the creation itself was the first great miracle. And then there are just miracles all along through there, all along through there. But they don't occur in just such a massive cluster as we do, as we have them in the book of Exodus. So after you get past the Exodus and the wandering of the wilderness, you begin to look for the next extraordinary cluster of miracles that were done. And you have miracles done in the invasion and conquest, such as the Battle of the Long Day. Uh, you've got things like that. You have in the Judges, there are a number of miracles that were done. And, uh, but the great real, the next real great cluster of miracles occurs in the days of Elijah and Elisha. Just the frequency of the miracles within the lifetime of these two men. Why, I don't know, I haven't counted, but uh, they probably equal just about all the miracles you could count otherwise before them until you get back here to the exodus. So you say, in the Old Testament, then, we find two extraordinary clusters of miracles. One, the exodus and the wandering in the wilderness, and the other, in the days of Elijah and Elisha. So then you say, what was there about these two periods that would require such a great cluster of miracles? And so you could say, okay, do we look for a kind of an average here that that every day they're just Millions of miracles being done all over the world, that everybody's getting miracles. Now, we don't find that. We find clusters. Now, why the clusters? What is there about the time of the Exodus and the wandering in the wilderness that, that would call forth this extraordinary outpouring of miracles? So, I'll just let you ponder that. What would you say would be the, the need for such an outpouring of miracles?
1: The message
0: being
1: preached.
0: All right. Because that, more problems. All right. You've got Moses back here. Go ahead, though, explore that more. What is there about this period that would require a great outpouring of miracles? God is preparing his people. To All right. That's right. Now, this people, they have not really known God, the ones in Egypt. Now, their forefathers knew God well, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but these people in Egypt, they do not know God well at all. The way uh, Moses says, what God shall I say sent me? I mean, obviously, they didn't know God. So one of the purpose of the miracles was to introduce the people to God that you may know. See that? Now, what, uh, what else was there? Well... One of the things that God was going to do to show his power was not just the miracles, but also to contrast his power with the power of Pharaoh in Egypt. Because he wanted Pharaoh in Egypt to know that I am the Lord. So you have this period of conflict between the Lord and this great empire of Egypt. You have the covenant that God is going to make with his people. He has to convince them that he is God. And uh, not only that he is a, a god of ethical principles and spiritual and moral principles, but he is a god of supreme power, that he has power. Uh, well, the gods that at that time they would have been more acquainted with would have been the gods of Egypt. So how does God show his power over the gods of Egypt? The gods of
1: hmm?
0: Yeah, that's right. So, he does this. So, alright, now let's, let's look, uh, at the days of Elijah and Elisha. Uh, what was there about their day that would require a great outpouring of miracles, you think? Well, there was the, there was
1: the establishment of the state religion that they borrowed, they brought from nation. Right. From the
0: base, and so it had to reestablish. That's right. The That's right. So God is doing extraordinary signs because of these prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And Elijah especially was one who was in such danger. He was, you know, at least on the firing line, you had that one man. And he was facing uh, Ahab and Jezebel and then Ahab's son, Aziah and Jehoram. And, but so, so Elijah was supported by the power of God and the miracles that he was able to do. They confirmed that he was the prophet of God. But it also taught Israel. Now here is the true God. Now you take, uh, in connection with Baal. Baal, the God of fertility. The storm God. And yet for three years, for three and a half years, it did rain. Not a single storm. And no fertility. So God, then, then, and then, and then to bring this to a, a culmination, and they have the meeting there on Mount Carmel, where the prophets of Baal are calling them on Baal, their God. And Baal fails. So Baal fails. Got a rhyme there. But in the case of Jehovah, boy, he comes through and just makes such an impression, and he provides the evidence. Now there again, the evidence. You know, God knows that men must have evidence. And he provided the evidence. Then there's another thing that you also learn, you know, and this is something that I think is really good to know and to teach and to use as you work with other people. You may present the very best evidence there is, and people will still not believe it. And then it is not a question of the quality of the evidence. But rather, what is it? The person, the attitude that person has. Because in connection with that, uh, the uh, the uh, victory of God over Baal there on Mount Carmel, how did Ahab respond to that? Well, immediately it seemed that he, uh, you know, wow, hey, wow, but but what about any long range results in Ahab? And what about Jezebel? He did what? I'm gonna kill him. And you know, you come then. Well, so we'll go on Elijah and Elisha. That was the great next next great cluster of miracles, and it was a time of of uh, emergency. It was a time a very crucial time in the history of Israel. And they had turned aside the Baal, and God was making He was pulling out all the stops to, to draw His people back to Him. Now the next great cluster of miracles comes in the days of Jesus. Now again we can. We can find miracles all along. Now, you take into captivity, uh, we have miracles that were going on there, but they were scattered out. And and all along here now, there was a background of miracles in the sense of inspiration. You know, a constant string of, of spokesmen and prophets through here. So, But I'm talking about the miraculous healings and signs and things like that. And so you come to the days of Jesus and the apostles and the first century was that other great, great concentration of miracles. So the thing that this does is to help you see that the miracles were not just acts of kindness that God decided to give everybody. They served a purpose beyond that, well beyond that. <clears throat> and Jesus himself made the point when he was at the uh, synagogue in Nazareth, uh, there at the beginning of his ministry, He said there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, but it was a widow up in Zarephath that Elijah went to. There were many lepers in Israel in the days of Naaman, but it was Naaman the leper. So the point that Jesus was making, one of the points he was making was that the miracles were never designed to heal all the lepers, never designed to raise all the dead. It just wasn't. There was a specific purpose. And... uh, Now, I think that one of the most uh, foolish, audacious things I ever heard of was Oral Roberts building a hospital. I'll explain. Oral Roberts was one of the most notorious, I use that word instead of famous, faith healers in the history of this country. And even back when I was a boy, he'd was he make the rounds and he'd have big tents and everybody would go to the tents and uh, when they did, he would say, he would say, I want a collection here and I want long green stuff. I don't want these coins, I want long green, meaning he wanted currency, you know. And uh, he'd have radio programs and lay your hand on the radio and you will be healed and and so then he, he had television programs and specials, almost like a variety show, singing, and he'd even have some stars to come on, and they'd sing. And, and uh, one time he made the point that if uh, the Lord has revealed that if I don't get the money for this, he's going to call me home. Remember that? Yeah, yeah, going to call me home. Well, with me, that would have worked the opposite way. I would have said, well, hurry up. <laughs> But he did have people that, 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 yeah, and he built a hospital, Dennis. So here's a faith healer who built a hospital. Apparently not. You know, to, but to me, if I were a faith healer and I believe that healing was just for anybody, why, every day I'd be up here at the hospital. I'd be going room to room just saying,
1: you know, there you are.
0: You know, man, I mean, I could think of all kinds of people that I would want to make a trip to right now. No, they don't do it and they can't do it. And they know they can't. And deception has been just rapid among those that practice this. So when you study with someone in that of that persuasion, I think that one of the very important things to do is to take them and show them the concentration of these miracles. And that very concentration shows that there's a purpose for the miracles beyond just doing somebody a favor. But it also shows that God expected signs to be given. Now another passage that I think is a really, really powerful one on this point is look in John chapter 12. And uh, that's one that you need to know about. (coughs) John chapter 12, verse 37, beginning... John chapter 12, verse 37. 37 through 43, really. Verse 37 says, But though he had done so many signs before them, yet they believed not on him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed. That's from Isaiah 53 and verse 1. For this cause they could not believe. In other words, I'm going to explain why they couldn't believe. For that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, lest they should see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and should turn, and I should heal them. Now I'm going to say a word about that, but let me read the rest of it. These things said Isaiah because he saw his glory, and he spake of him. Nevertheless, even of the rulers, many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, the reason for they love the glory that is of men, that is of men, more than the glory that is of God. Now in that passage, there were signs. The signs produced faith, but the faith was not confessed because there was something else at work in these men. It wasn't the evidence that was the problem. But the evidence had been presented. Once again, God is a God who presents evidence for faith. He doesn't require men to believe with no evidence. So Jesus provided abundant evidence. And remember at the close of this book, he says, Many other signs, therefore, did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe. The purpose of signs is to create faith. John twenty thirty and 31. So when someone says, you don't have a right to ask a sign of me, well, you do have a right. These signs were done in order that you might believe. So what I'm asking of you is a sign in order that I might believe. See? So make it a parallel. Jesus, many other signs he did, these are written that you might believe. Okay? Uh, So what I'm asking of you is a sign that I might believe. not a matter of going to the Bible trying to prove you can do a miracle. It's a matter of you're doing a miracle to prove that what you're saying is uh, is is of God. Now, <clears throat> that statement in verse 40, from Isaiah 6, where Isaiah was, uh, received his commission from God, he has blinded their eyes. Of course, this is taken to mean that God took people who were really fine people, and he just made them bad. He just blinded them and everything. Yeah, it was his fault. But the uh, the uh, context of Isaiah 6 shows that Isaiah was dealing with a people who were already stubborn and rebellious, and I can illustrate it like this: If you have a, a child that you're trying to deal with, and the child has already demonstrated to you that uh, that he does not intend to do what you say, he's really showing a bad, raunchy attitude. He's not going to do what you say at all. What should you, what's going to happen when you tell him to do something? Yeah, yeah it's just going to raise his hackles up. He's just So what would you be supposed to do there? Just say, oh, I better not say anything. I better not tell him to do anything because it would make him harden his heart. No, that's not it. But by your telling him to do what he needs to do, when you know that it's just going to set his back up against you, You yet have to do that. Well, God was dealing with a people who had already shown that they were rejecting his will. He therefore knew that for him to press his case upon them was just going to make them harden their hearts and close their eyes and uh, tell the spokesman, Don't tell us that anymore. Get out of my face. I don't want to hear the Holy One of Israel anymore. But God is saying, I want them told anyhow. And when Isaiah said, How long am I supposed to do this? God said, Till the cities are destroyed and the houses are burned and the land is left desolate. Now that means that because of the attitude of the people, this is what they're going to bring on themselves. God continued to press his case. Pressing his case made them, made their hearts harden. But it wasn't because God went in there and flipped some dip switches and, and just made their minds. Now that's the application people will make of it. But what you have to do is, Actually, if you will look at the position of Isaiah 6, you might say, now why does Isaiah have his commission, chapter 6, in chapter 6 and not in chapter 1 or 2? Well, it's because it comes right in the middle of a section where Isaiah is indicting the people of God for their stubbornness and unbelief and rebellion. So his commission, given in chapter 6, is not primarily to tell about his commission. It is put there to add to the point about the stubbornness and rebellion of the people. That's why it fits there. It just perfectly illustrates God's attitude toward these people because of their rebellion and everything. So I just explained that there in in the midst of of that passage. So um, let's move now to another topic that I want to do a little bit of work with you on, and that is miraculous divine healing. Let's look at that. Do you have a question?
1: No, I just got to That was very similar to the, the way that God said that he will pardon Pharaoh's
0: uh, heart, heart. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Exactly. And if you study all the verses in the Exodus material you'll find that mm, I think it's a little less than half the time it'll be Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then other times it'll say God hardened his heart. But that's exactly right, then. It's exactly the same thing. All right, now let's study about miraculous divine healing for a moment. Now, the only problem I have with miraculous divine healing as something today is one of those words, miraculous, because all healing is divine. But it is not all miraculous. Now in in times past, in the days of the Bible, God did use healing as an act of confirmation to uh, prove that the uh, prophet was uh, uh, his and to create faith in people's minds. Now like Hezekiah, when, uh, when Isaiah conveyed to him the will of God, that he be healed, give 15 more years to him, that wasn't so Isaiah could be shown to be a prophet. But it was in order to create faith in Hezekiah and to in, to strengthen his faith. So, um, but all healing is divine. Now, this is something that you have to be careful because sometimes I get the feeling that uh, that I'm coming across almost like a preacher excusing God, and we're just kind of making this up for public relations. But I really, really don't mean that. I really, really do believe that in the creation of man, God has designed healing into our bodies. We know that, we know that from scientific evidence as well. Not that that means anything. Bible's plenty for me. But nevertheless, we do have corroborating evidence in the various things in the body that are there to fight infection. And so healing is something that God has built into the human body. And there are extraordinary things that the body can do in order to heal itself. So all healing is divine in that it is divinely planned and provided. And one of the things that we have to be careful about (coughs) is we sometimes don't count it as a divine blessing unless it is a miraculous one. And to me, one of the best illustrations of what we're talking about there is the uh, contrast between the manna and the produce of the land of Canaan. The manna was what kind of food? Miraculous. And they ate the manna until they crossed the Jordan and began to eat the produce of the land. When they began to eat the produce of the land of Canaan, the manna stopped. So what about the produce of the land? Was it a miraculous thing? But it was what? What was it? It was the blessing from God because he was giving them the land and therefore the produce of the land. It was as much a blessing of God as the manna was. That's right. Exactly. So to me, that, that is a beautiful contrast, but showing that whether it's miraculous or whether it is a providential blessing, it is nevertheless and equally a blessing of God. And we need to consider them a blessing of God. And uh, we also need, and I think that uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and other passages teaches this, that a gift from God may not be a miraculous one. Like you may have an intellect that is given to you of God. And that is a blessing from God. It's not a miraculous one, but it's a blessing from God. So whether it's a miracle or whether it is an endowment that God has given you in life, it is a blessing from God. You need to consider it one uh, and use it. Uh, You need to use that. Like Barnabas was a uh, a kind of an encouraging, a very encouraging guy. That was not a gift given to him miraculously, but it was one given to him by temperament, and therefore the apostles themselves recognized that, named him son of consolation. So, um, the idea of divine healing <laughs> it is created into the body so whether it is miraculous healing or whether it is the divine healing that God has programmed into the body it is equally a blessing from God and so when when I talk about having a cold and getting over the cold and I can say the Lord helped me get over that cold well he did but he didn't do it miraculously but that doesn't mean he didn't do it almost we're wanting to say we'll just pretend we just pretend he No, he really did it. When he designed our bodies and created us, he designed it where the healing is there. So he is the one who receives the credit. He is due the credit. And when we pray for someone who is sick to get well, and they get well, it is not for us to say then how God healed them. Now, uh, I've known, uh, for example, I've known some cases where there were spontaneous cures of cancer. Usually when it happened, there was a very high fever involved. And uh, there are cases on record. There's a book written by a man named William Nolan in search of a miracle. He was a surgeon. And it's probably out of print now, but you might go on Google and look for it. And you, it is a very, very interesting book. And he told in the book about some situations where, uh, like here was a man... <coughs> Who was operated on, and they opened him up and found the cancer. Well, that's too bad. So, let's just sew him back up. So they did. Well, then he, he got, uh, he was working on a barbed wire, got his hand, uh, scratched, and got infected. He ran a terribly high fever. And time went by, and uh, that cancer didn't seem to be doing much; didn't not, not getting any worse. And then he had some surgery for some other reason, some other purpose, and there was no sign of the cancer. Now, I'm I'm sort of of the opinion that that may that kind of thing may have happened to Carolyn Miller. You Remember when she was sick and she had the absolute terrible fever? She had a terrible fever and uh so i I think that that kind of thing may have happened to her, so divine healing, but it is not miraculous. Let me look at a few passages with you. let's look at mark chapter eight. in the healing of Jesus and the apostles, there was never a failure mark eight twenty two through twenty six okay uh, so, one of you want to read that?
1: And he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And then he put spitting on his eye, and put his hands on him. He asked him if he saw him. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on, on his eyes and again he, and again, and made him look up, and he was restored, and saw everyone through. Then he sent him away to his house, saying, he go into the town, nor tell anyone in the
0: town. <laughs> now, are you familiar with this story? Or are you familiar with it? This? this story is used. Can you imagine what the miraculous the, the, the miraculous healers use this for?
1: You know, that Jesus won uh, totally uh, able to do this. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. or maybe to inject into the healing process some passage time. That, that's right. Both of those ideas are, are, are used for this. Now, now, what I want you to do <laughs> is consider those two things in the light of this passage and see what, what would you say. Let's take the first one. Uh, this, this shows that Jesus uh, had trouble healing the man. Now, how would you like to affirm that proposition? <laughs> <laughs> I know that. No way. So, what what would you say to them then if they tried to use this to show? Oh, well, even even Jesus had trouble healing sometimes.
1: Jesus used different ways to go about. Sometimes he was speak. Sometimes he was present with the people. Sometimes he was not. He didn't use the same exact
0: method every time. That's right. I'm going go ahead and let them call out. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I think that one thing I focus on, therefore, I, I believe you're right, uh, Ralph. That, that's one thing you need to point out, that uh, there was just a variety of methods that Jesus used when he healed. But would you really, you know, I would ask the person, now are you saying to me that Jesus had trouble healing? Is that what you're saying? That he had trouble healing? Uh, like somebody would come through the line and he'd just say, I'm sorry, I just can't help you out. You're too much for me. It, so was this one, this one was so tough when he could still, Yeah, yeah. he could still storm and see he could raise the dead, but he had trouble healing this guy. Blindness. That doesn't make sense. So I believe it does have to do with the method, what Jesus was seeking to do. Now what about the time, Jeff? How would you deal with the time element here?
1: Well, this doesn't match. The examples we're told about today, you nowhere was he told about. You go away and it'll happen either tonight or tomorrow next week. The, the time of it.
0: It was still obvious with the Lord. And it was virtually immediate, yeah. even so. I mean, if you think, the time would have been taking him by the hand, bringing him out of the village. He gets out of there. Now then, consider, he spit on his eyes, so the guy's got his eyes closed. Jesus spits on his eyelids. Lays his hands upon him. What do you see? Meaning, open your eyes and see what you see. I see men. I behold them as trees walking. In other words, just just objects out here like trees. And he laid him on him again. And then he could see everything clearly. Now, right there is about how much time that took. How much time was that from the time he spit on his eyes? No. So that would qualify as immediate in my book. He did it within a minute. So what I would do is say to the healer, well I'll tell you what, I'll give you a minute. You, you go ahead and add a minute. I'll give you five minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you don't ever have a case where Jesus said uh, a few days from now, you know, you, it, it'll take a while, take a few days for this to get better and everything like that. So the healing was immediate. It was immediate. Um, another passage, uh, look at Matthew 17. Matthew 17, 14 through 18. Now this one is a really, really good one. 17, 14 through 18. Okay, Ralph, can you read that one?
1: 14 through 18. Mm-hmm. Let go when um, they had come to Maltes, had the multitude the man and king that had down and saved him, Lord, have mercy on my son, and praised and athletic. And so the for he often falls in the fire and falls into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, that they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Free him cure me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and came out of the child was cured
0: from that very hour now the failure there was the disciples could not do it but Jesus didn't have a problem doing it well the disciples were as curious about it as you and I would be why were they not able to do it so now read verses 19 through uh, uh, through 20
1: then the disciples came to Jesus Christ and said why can we not cast it out so Jesus said to them because of your unbelief or sure did I say you if you have faith as a muscle, seed, you will say to this mountain, "Move from here to uh, here to there," and it will be it will move, and nothing will be impossible for
0: you. Now, in other in other passages, he says. Uh, in fact, in the footnote here, uh, it adds, uh, "But this kind goeth not out save by prayer and fasting." And many have wondered what Jesus meant by that. Well, I don't think that the prayer and the fasting wasn't necessarily connected with the healing itself, but with the idea they didn't have enough faith. It was they were of little faith. Now, what I want you to ponder about here is that this is chapter 17, a long time after chapter 10. Now, what had happened in chapter 10? The limited commission. And what were they supposed to be able to do on the limited commission? And remember, Peter had uh, walked on the water. These guys had done miracles. But when they were confronted with this epileptic, with the spirit, they couldn't deal with it. So you, you know, well, wonder why. Well, it had to do with their faith. Not the faith of the epileptic. Not the faith of, of him. But it was the faith of the disciples themselves. Now, here's the thing. When when Peter walked on the water that time and began to sink, he did successfully walk on the water at first. Why did he begin to sink?
1: He began to so us.
0: That's right. He became afraid, and the fear drove out his faith. Instead of the faith driving out the fear, the fear drove out the faith. And I believe, therefore, that what happened here, the violent way in which this boy was behaving under the influence of that spirit, I think he scared the skew out of those apostles. And suddenly, their faith was gone. And they could not heal him because they were scared to death. They said, man, look at that, wow! And they were just scared to death. That's so amazing to me yeah, I never see Jesus afraid. Whether it's in the storm or confronted by the most violent demons or whatever, He's not afraid. That's amazing. He's not afraid. He can handle the situation. Sometimes in His healing, He did require faith. But that was not the, not an always thing. Look in uh, Matthew 9 and verse 28. We're going to look at a variety of things here. Verse 27, uh, Jesus passed by. Two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Have mercy on us, thou Son of God. And when he was come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus saith unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this? They say unto him, Yea, Lord. Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done unto you. In other words, as you believe. Even so... I don't believe that he means that this is a necessary ingredient for activating the power I have. But I think he's just asking them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said yes. All right, then if you believe that I'm able to do this, then according, as you believe, in other words, since you believe that I can do this, or as you believe that I can do this, I'm going to do it. In other words, I'm going to do what you believe I can do. Not that your faith enables me to do it, but I'm, he's just saying I am going to do what you believe that I can do. Turn to Mark chapter 2 and verse 5 as another example where he, uh, the question is raised about the person who is healed having the faith. Mark 2 and verse 5, <clears throat> these men that brought the palsied man before Jesus, and Jesus seeing their faith, saith unto the sick of the palsy. See that? Jesus seeing their faith, that's the faith of the men that brought the palsied man. Doesn't even refer necessarily to the palsied man. But seeing their faith, saith unto the sick of the palsy, son, thy sins are forgiven. And in the process, he heals him of his, uh, uh of his uh, disease, of his palsy. Look over in verses 23 and 24. Because this one's going to take us back to the transfiguration scene. This is Mark's account of the, <coughs> of the transfiguration. And in verse 18, uh, he verse 17, he says, Teacher, I brought unto thee my son, who hath a dumb spirit, meaning mute, he can't talk. And, whereso- and wheresoever it taketh him, it dasheth him down, and he foameth, and grindeth his teeth, and pineth away, and- I spake to thy disciples that they should cast it out, and they were not able. Mark okay. nine. 9, Mark nine. yeah, Mark 9, begun in verse 17. And uh, now he said in verse 18, I brought it to your disciples that they should cast it out, and they were not able. And he answereth them, <clears throat> not him, but them, and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him unto me. And so when they brought him before Jesus, straightway the spirit tear him grievously. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. Now, you know, that is a frightening thing. If you've ever seen someone have a very violent fit like that. And Jesus, (coughs) look at what Jesus says. He just says, how long, how long time is it since this has come upon him? Just so calm. From a child. Oft times it has cast him both into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if thou canst, all things are possible to him that believeth. Straightway the father of the child crieth out and said, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And then Jesus proceeded to go ahead and uh, uh, heal the child. So Jesus wanted men to have a receptive mind to be willing to believe. There were so many he dealt with that were not and he would rebuke them when they had a, a, a hard attitude that they would not believe like they wouldn't believe his teaching. They will not believe what he taught them. They'd have to see a miracle. Particularly the Pharisees, the Jews. They should have been able to believe him because of the prophecies and the teachings and his teachings and his fulfillment of those prophecies. no, God has got to see a sign. Got to see a sign. In
1: verse twenty-three, uh, after the after the father says believe so he in verse twenty-two, but uh, if you can, is that Jesus? Is that a question? If I can, that is to say,
0: that's not the right thing to say to me. Have to
1: have to ask him for a yes, if you can.
0: Yes. So question. No. No. But I I think that when Jesus was saying, if thou canst, mine has an exclamation point also, but I think that Jesus was making it a question. (coughs) Are you seriously doubting whether I can do this or not? So I think that's what he was doing. But there are many other passages that show that faith was not required. It was not required. It was not even asked about. Like, look in John 2, and we could just, we could just multiply these. But in John 2, this is uh, verses 1 through 11, this is the marriage in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus comes to him, says, they have no wine, and Jesus says, woman, what have I to do with thee? In other words, this is not a matter that I can do in response to the request of my mother. This is Jesus saying, I don't have the, the power that I have is not so that I, as your son, can do what my mother asked me to do. A son would normally try to comply with whatever his mother asked him to do. Jesus is saying to his mother, as the Messiah, as the Christ, I don't—I'm not using my power merely to do whatever you would like me to do. She understood that, and so Jesus makes her make sure she understands that, and she does not go away. With well, I guess he's not going to even help. She understands, and so she goes away and tells the uh, the servant, the servants that were helping out, these servants are merely assistants. These are not slaves. Because the word is, is different. In fact, it is the, uh, one of the words, it's the uh, idea of the deacon, the diakonos, the servants, assistants. Whatever he says to you, do it.
1: And she didn't say that because that's right, I told you. That's that's right. That's that's
0: right. Whatever he says to you, you do it. So there's no question of, do you believe I can do this? And, And so he changes this water to wine. And if you want to really get down to it, every miracle he does on something physical, the thing physical certainly could not have had faith. Killed the fig tree, still the storm. Faith could not have been required on the part of those things. So the idea of faith being a requirement, it is not a, an activating requirement on the part of Jesus. And you never find one case where Jesus failed and said, well, problem was you just didn't have enough faith. And yet that's the constant cry of the faith healers when they fail. They say, well, you didn't have enough faith. That's what the problem was. You never once. And I, I would just say, when I'm dealing with people like that, I think it's really good to just say, now, I don't know of any passage where, where that happens. Maybe you do. And leave it in their court. to Supply the passage that shows that Jesus tried to heal somebody, and he couldn't do it, and it was because they didn't have enough faith. Where did Jesus fail? And then where did he fail because the person didn't have enough faith? Uh Look in 7, uh, Luke. Yeah, I better tell you the book. <laughs> Luke seven eleven through 17. We could just... Oh, we could get so many examples of this. But look at the story that's referred to there. And this is the only account this story is in. You know what that story is? Yes, the raising of the son of the widow of Nain. Nothing said about faith. And of course, the man who was raised was dead and therefore did not have faith. And look at, uh, alright, uh, look at John 5. John 5, 1 through 9. Now this has to do with a lame man that Jesus healed at the uh, Pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. <clears throat> so look at what happens when Jesus comes up in verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he, uh, he said unto him, Would you be made whole? Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I'm coming, another step down before me. Arise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, did the question of faith even come up in that discussion? See? Didn't even come up.
1: a deficiency of faith was involved in the equation. In Exactly. The ones who are going to be administering in the miracle, not the ones who
0: That's right. So the care about that. That's right. And maybe we need to point out that maybe your failure to heal is your <laughs> Your faith. Your faith. You don't have enough faith. Mm-hmm. No. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. See, yeah, yeah. That, that man thought that that was what Jesus was talking about. He had no idea. That's right. No idea. Well, uh, let me uh, say just a few words about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the first thing I want to say is that men have made that a theological issue. They've made it a theological term. Because they don't usually go around talking about the indwelling of Jesus or the indwelling of God, and yet we can find passages that talk about Jesus dwelling in us, about God dwelling in us. Here's the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. So when we read these passages, then we begin to say, well, it says he dwells in us. Well, I know it does. So how does he do it? Is there no how involved? Uh, Did God dwell in the temple? Yes. How? Solomon says, we know that your presence will not actually dwell in this building that we have made. Heaven and earth cannot contain you. So how could you possibly dwell in this building? So the whole idea of dwelling uh, refers to the influence of that being, whether it's God or Christ or the Holy Spirit, being in your life. So that the point of God being in the tabernacle or being in the temple was not a physical dwelling of God. It would be hard for me to figure out how a spirit dwells physically. I don't know how that's done. But it's the idea of here he he uh the, the the point is that the people regarded God as being in their presence and it wasn't that God wanted his presence to be specifically associated with that building, as if he was in the building. The primary way he wanted to dwell in his people is in their lives. And because they would not live as God directed them day by day, he eventually withdrew his presence in vision from the temple, saying, I'm not going to have a building named after me and everything when you won't let me be in your lives. So when we talk about God being in our hearts, or Jesus being in our hearts, like in passages like in John 14, uh, I'm right here at John, I don't know if you are. Look at John chapter 14. Look at a few special passages there. Um, like in, uh, in verse 20, in that day, this is John fourteen twenty. In that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself unto him. And then verse 23, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. So I I think that we're just really trying to make something very hard out of what is actually a Bible-wide subject, and that is that God wants to live in us. He wants to do that, in that we live his way, so it's like Paul said, it is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And I believe that's exactly what is meant by the spirit dwelling in me. And uh, one of the the things I have in your uh, handout I gave you on that, Thayer defines dwelling there in the sense of being operative, uh, something being operative in us, operating in our lives. And and I think that's right. And you take uh, in Romans 8, which is probably the main passage um, on the uh, subject of the dwelling of the Spirit, the passages that are mentioned there all are talking about the influence of the Spirit in our lives as we submit to his leadership. Um, Like, uh, let's see, take up about, All right, verse uh, 9, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If Christ is in you, so there's the Spirit is in you, Christ is in you. Verse 11, But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwelleth in you. There's nothing in this passage that makes it have to be a literal thing. Now, I don't have any objection to a literal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I don't have any objection to that. I just don't find that required by the language. And to me, the language is similar to the language throughout the Bible talking about God's influence in our lives, that he lives in us. He dwells in us. Jesus dwells in us. He makes his abode in us. All of those are talking about the fact we submit to his leadership. So that it is as if he's the one living in us. It is, as, is a, it is as if the spirit is the one who is actually living in us, directing us. But I don't believe the Bible teaches he does that literally. And I would point this out: if he does dwell in us literally, I know of nothing in the Bible that shows us what he does there apart from the Word. That
1: would be yeah. Well,
0: what yeah. Right. Right. And 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 I, I don't I don't find anything telling us about that. And I do believe that if I begin to affirm a direct operation of the Spirit in the leading and guiding of the Christian, I have at least cracked the door to make uh, the argument that okay, if if I can have the literal presence, a direct operation, because see, if He has a literal dwelling in us. Then whatever he does, it looks to me like it'd have to be a kind of a direct operation. Otherwise, why, what's the advantage of having dwell in us literally? So, if, if I can have a direct operation of the Spirit in, in my sanctification, my consecration, and my living, then there's not near as big a gap then to the idea of, well, why not in, in conversion? And, uh, so I don't, I'm not accusing one who believes that of, of believing that a direct operation in conversion. I'm just saying I think it's going to be harder for him to deal with that.
1: I just heard people say, uh, that when the Spirit dwells in you, then he's the one that brings to you remembrance different things. You know, and they'll say, oh, I of
0: that. Yeah, yeah. And that's like the apostles. You know, that's exactly what Jesus said to them that he will bring to your remembrance all that I said unto you. Well, that is not the way the Spirit's going to work in us. So anyone that's using that example, they're actually affirming the inspiration of the Spirit like the apostles had. Because that verse is used of them, John fourteen twenty six. But
1: in that text, it doesn't bring to your remembrance. I mean,
0: you need to have before. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. So we just wouldn't fit there at all. So uh, the only thing we've got is the exposure to the word itself. Now, when I can remember that word, that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is literally making me remember it because uh, you might have a Shakespearean scholar. Well, he can remember what he studies, that Holy Spirit making him remember that. I mean, it's a natural process that we study something and then are able to remember it. And uh, there's no, no call for some kind of a miraculous or direct operation of the Spirit. But you can uh, read that information there, and I think it's very full. And uh, I've, got a, I've got a quite extensive work on the Holy Spirit in which I've studied every verse in the New Testament on the subject. But it would be way too much for us to go through, and it was also too much for me to want to print out one for everybody. But I do have it. And uh, someday, if I can get all the writing done that I want to get done, I'd like to put it out. Um, but years ago, I did that study in radio sermons, and then I've gone back and, and refined it. And there was a dear lady way back there who uh, took the recordings of those sermons and transcribed them. Her name was Ada Upton. And just a, oh, two or three years ago, I uh, don't know if you remember Ralph or Jeff, uh, but I had to drive out. I drove out to Arkansas to conduct her funeral. That was the lady that transcribed those notes for me. Yeah, yeah. Because it meant that much to me. It really meant a lot to me for what she had done. And she was a, oh, she was such a wonderful, strong woman. Someday I need to tell the story of what she did to be a Christian. But anyway, well, time is up. And I'm going to have to run, but I have surely enjoyed being with you this week. And I'll see you this afternoon, Lord willing, uh, before you get away. So we'll just close at this point.